simple kind of guy, and for me to understand it, I want to stay on the simple side of things. So uh, let me pick somebody. I'm always picking on certain people. Lawrence, what what is this? Bottle of water. So inside of this is not a trick question. It's not vodka or anything. It's this is water, right? This is water. And I, I didn't I, I didn't have to coach you or school you or teach you anything or read any scripture. Y'all just y'all all knew what this was. You knew that this was a bottle of water that I obtained from the praise team refrigerator back in the back. Bottle of water. So you know I like a title. So my title this morning is simply this. This is water. This is water. I'll let you know ahead of time in, in case that you run across this. I, I, you probably won't, but I did uh, plagiarize this title. The thoughts are mine, but this is water is actually a, a speech that another man gave some time ago that I heard. And along with it went this story. I heard a story once about two young clownfish that were swimming along in the ocean on their way to school when they came across an old sturgeon, a sturgeon fish. And the old sturgeon fish trying to relate to the young folks, he asked them, he said, hi, boys. He said, how's the water today? And the two young fish, like they so often do, they smugly ignored the old man, the old fish. And a few minutes later, after they had swam off, they asked one another, what, what is water anyway? <laughs> that old sturgeon talking about. It's an observation I made some time ago, and it, it seems to me that sometimes the most obvious, and I like this word, okay, I put this one in here on purpose, ubiquitous, <laughs> the most obvious and ubiquitous spiritual realities are those that sometimes we lack clarity and understanding. Somehow the fact that we're immersed in them, that we're surrounded by them, that they're so blaring and obvious and simple, we assume that, that all is well with that, and we move on in our quest for righteousness to something that we feel is a more adequate uh, recipient of our focus. The simple concepts become common to us, and hence sometimes we fail to give them the attention that is due this. I say that simply to set up this question that I want to ask you this morning. I want you to think about what your social default setting is. From what predetermined perspective, Brother Lawrence, do you perceive the lives of others? There's this, you know what a default is. It's, you know, when everything's kind of out of place and you push the button, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be what you return to, where you wind up kind of naturally. How does the Word of God answer this question? Uh, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away, the Bible says. I think we could probably all agree that this, these last days that the Bible speaks of, we're either in or very close to, not very far away. So we have to, I have to admit that, that these things exist in the world and, and sometimes among us in the church. Verse 2 says that men shall be lovers of themselves. This references the fact that Christian love in these times will be aborted and that people will only focus on satisfying their own desires. The default setting of the flesh is to assume that all things revolve around what? That's right, self. All things revolve around self. It says that I am the center of the circumstance. It says that how I feel about the circumstance will determine my reaction. It considers only how I will be affected. Just some simple, you know, have, have you ever been, you like, you've been cut off in traffic? Now, my wife's not in here, so I get to pick on her today. <laughs> Y'all all know Nancy pretty well. And you know that she's harmless, right? Real sweet, kind. She can, she can just really deal with a lot of stuff. She puts up with me and all the trouble that comes with it. But when that little woman gets behind the wheel of a car, I'm telling you, things change. Susan, you think I'm joking, but we, we fuss at each other about that. She gets intense about driving, you know. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you're like, look, that stupid idiot. Do doesn't he realize where I'm going? Why did he just do that to me? Doesn't he know I'm late already, and so on and so on? Or maybe you go to the grocery store, and you get in one of those lines that, you know, there's some old lady there, and she's buying food for seven households, Brother Lawrence. You've got 115 coupons for each one, and all the other lines are closed. You think about that, and you, you, maybe you get upset or you're, you're tired. You know, you've, you're, you're thinking in your mind, I've been out all day, and i still got to get home, and i still got to deal with these kids, and then i got to think about work tomorrow, and it's just always something. What about when the tired husband comes home and, the wife is just waiting at the door, and she wants to give him the what and the wherefore in a chronological way about what all chaos my kids did that day. And he thinks, you know, you ain't got nothing on my story. Let me tell you about my day. As if somehow his trouble, trumping her trouble, will make them both feel better. Not the case. Examples abound, but my point is that the default reaction of the flesh and the carnal is usually the same, and as Brother Merrill noted, it, it almost always begins with I. We consistently and immediately go into the assessment of how the circumstances that they generated will affect me and mine. Our concern is rarely for the possible predicament of the other person involved. Maybe that fellow that cuts you off in traffic is rushing to the scene of an accident or to the hospital or who knows what's going on with him. That old slow lady in the checkout line, maybe she's buying groceries for some people that can't afford them. So when you apply those unknown circumstances, the possibilities, the variables that exist, 
My question then is, does that change your perspective? Does it change how you would react to these people in these times? In these times, we must put love into action. I must. I must measure my response with the yardstick that is established in 1 Corinthians 13. And you all know this, this group of scriptures. I'm going to read it anyway because I appreciate it so much. Because I've been learning from this in recent times. It, it, it means a lot to me. 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 starts and says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endures all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there'll be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I know even as I also am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Are my initial responses and judgments congruent with the words of this chapter? You know, you just go through there and you find those places Charity suffereth long. You know, have I done that? Have I really suffered with, with my relationships? Have I, have I put myself down for the benefit of some of those times? Have I envied? Have I behaved unseemly? Have I rejoiced in, in the failings or the iniquity of someone else? I have to base, I have to measure my own actions and responses with those words in that chapter. Listen to uh, Psalm 78 and 38. The Bible says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time he turned he his anger away and did not stir up his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and cometh not again. When I read this, something about it really jumped out at me. Isn't it interesting that you, re you read in verse 39 that the Lord remembered something? He remembered something. So let me just ask you the question, did he forget? 
No. But it says he remembered something. He hadn't forgotten, but what it, what it means to me, what it says to me is that God summoned almost some kind of knowledge that was applicable to the circumstances of the offender. He remembered something about them. And that offense is detailed uh, in, in verse 35 and 37. It says, and they remembered God was their rock and, their, and the high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Covenant. That was the offense. And, and the judgment would have been justified. And it was. There were some judgments later in before in this chapter, but the judgment would have been reasonable. But the Bible says that God remembered. And this remembrance, this understanding, this knowledge that he, he asserted about these people mitigated to some degree his anger with them. Back to us now. We, the, the truth is, and I think you would all admit this, and I certainly do, what we know about these uh, kinds of situations, just think about um, when you've been offended or when there's been an offense posed against you and when someone has, uh, has done something to you that, that upset you, that created some, some new emotion in you. Did you know all there was to know about them? Did you know what happened to them the day before or that morning? Do you know all the circumstances that, that may or may not have, have caused them to act that way towards you? It's not likely that you do, right? There are some things that, that cause them to be the way they are. There are some things that cause me to be the way I am. I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't really been offended a lot as a person. It's, it's pretty rare that I, I get offended. I really, to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not even sure what that means, to be offended. I mean, you know, I can be upset with somebody. But I, I suspect that I probably have done my fair share of offending. You know, the, the Bible says, and this, this is not in the notes, but the Bible says, um, I think it's in Matthew, blessed are those who are, are not offended in me. You know, what was Jesus talking about there? He, all the things that, that he was going through at that time, there were, there were reasons for him to be offended. He was never wrong. He was never out of line. Everything that he did and said was, was with the right motive and, and ultimately even had the right product. There was nothing he ever did that was wrong. And yet he was completely rejected, despised, crucified, stabbed, hated. The list goes on and on. And Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended in me. For those people who are, who are part, the apostles and the disciples of that time, who are part of what, what he stood for, those people would be persecuted. But he said, blessed are they who are not offended in me. Blessed are they who are not offended. So... Back to my point, the, as I was saying, I, I, don't, I really don't think I've been offended a lot, but I have offended a fair amount. 
probably. Sometimes folks have told me. Sometimes it's based on my own assumption. I realized something later, Vic, I, you know, I probably shouldn't have st- said that, shouldn't have done that. A failure on my own part. But when I look back at those times, I understand that there were usually other circumstances that at least played into what, what I had done. They had created an attitude in me or they had, um, they had made maybe my, my temper a little shorter than it otherwise would have been. But, you know, that's just life, right? That's, that's one of those colloquialisms, that's life. We use that often and probably too often. But that's just the way it is. We're, we're going to encounter those circumstances, right? You're going to be mad at somebody, right? Things are going to happen to you. So what do you do with that? What do you, how do you handle this emotion? We talk a lot about that uh, here at Grace. I hear, it, I hear it taught on and I hear it preached about. And emotion really shouldn't be discounted as something that's not valuable. We say, hey, you can't, you can't act based on your emotion. Meryl, you've said that, right? And that's true. You can't act based on your emotion, but he's not saying this, okay? Y'all understand. I'm saying that I have heard it in the past to where based in that, that line of logic, people say it's not good to be emotional, it's, it, has, it doesn't really serve a purpose, so I have to, in my mind, say, okay, well, let's take all the emotion out of everything. If it's not good to be emotional, let's not be emotional. You with me? So what happens then? What are we if that is absent? We're, we don't even live. There's nothing. There's no John Smith or Adam or Lawrence Hawkins. They're just, we're just all the same. So like everything else in life, there has to be this balance that's acquired, this balance that's struck. True, we don't act on every emotion that we feel. We have to think through the way we perceive other people. Other people have to think through the way they perceive us. You guys will sometimes have to look at at Brian and say, hmm, you know, he's not usually like that. that's something different about Tyr today. He doesn't usually react that way. He doesn't usually ignore me. He doesn't usually engage me. There's always something at work inside of us. I have really gotten off track here. It's okay, though. I, I liked it, so I'm sure y'all did too. So the truth is we know very little about the kinds of situation in other people's lives. We just, we don't have all the information. And even if we did, because of who we are and the, the carnality that's in us, we'd still judge it improperly. <laughs> even if we knew everything, we'd still mess it up, okay? <laughs> but it's my contention this morning that this is when we need to, like God did in Psalms, this is when we need to remember We've got to remember like God remembered. We've got to remember that we don't know everything. We've got to remember that even if we did know it all, we still wouldn't have the answer. 
we've got to remember what love is. We've got to remember, we've got to cognitively act to remember what's in Corinthians 13. Psalm 86 and 15, just, just a few scriptures about compassion and grace and mercy with God. It says, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. 111 and 4 says, he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. 112 and 4 says, unto the upright there arises a light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. 135 and 14 says, for the Lord will judge his people and we, he will have compassion on his servants. Lastly, Psalm 145 and 8 says, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. We serve a compassionate father. That's what I want to strive for. And, and you know, you, you guys have, most of you have, have heard me talk into a microphone long enough now to, to see that there's a kind of a general direction for me. And it'll change from time to time. I'll, I'll go off into something new. But this is my heart for this season of my life. I want to be compassionate more than anything else. I want to see people, I want to see you just the way you are and accept that. Because that's what God does to me. He's demonstrated that to me. And that's the way I want to be. I remember uh, kind of my first glimpse into compassion. Uh, I may have told this story recently. I think it was in a care group, so most of you wouldn't have known it. But uh, Nancy and I had, had announced our engagement to uh, our parents and to our pastor. I was... I was 18 at the time. We, we would have been having this discussion. And uh, we were in pastor's office, Brother Young at the time. We were talking to him about getting married. And, of course, we wanted him to marry us. I hesitate to say this on what may be recorded, but Brother Young wasn't the most compassionate person, you understand. He could be a little curt at times. But he was a professional, and he knew what he was talking about. So we told him what we were thinking about and that we were bound and determined and in love to get married and all that stuff. <laughs> and he asked me, he said, well, son, have you, have you talked to your folks about this? I said, yes, sir, I have. He said, well, what did they have to say about it? So I told him the story. I said, well, my mom forbid it. Said it was a bad idea. Said I was too young and didn't know what I was doing. My dad said, I'll tell you what, boy. He said, if you wait... Uh, six months and you still want to get married, then go ahead and get married. I said, don't decide today, just, just give me six months. I said, okay, Pop, that's a deal. Nancy's mother, whole different story. There was no logic with her. There still isn't really. <laughs> but uh, she was harsh. She was uh, unkind might, might be a better word. So I, I told Brother Young that in that meeting, and he smiled and he said, well, you know, she's, she's been through a lot. Nancy, most of you have never met her, but she's never been in church. And Nancy came into this 
God experience on her own. And uh, her mother was, for a very long time, opposed to it and, and worked very hard to keep her away. But uh, Brother Young knew her well enough to, to know that she had been through a, a great deal of struggle in her life. Nancy's father was an alcoholic, and uh, they lived in Arizona. When Nancy was two, her mother decided to leave this man. She had three children. So, And when I say leave, I don't mean, hey, honey, I don't want to see you anymore. I mean, when he went to work, she packed up everything they owned, and she drove to Baton Rouge, and they've never seen each other since. You know, that's a hard life. Now, there were decisions that got her to those places. But nevertheless, there was a lot of pain there. Brother Young knew that. And he said, well, Brian, he said, if you can, if you can just wrap your mind around the pain that she's been through, if you can just understand that she's not just mean by nature, she's been through some things, you'll begin to see that there's, You'll have compassion. You begin to see the, the human condition, as people call it. And it's really, it really stuck with me, and, and I can't say that it changed me at that time. It's just something that I remembered. And as I got older, and that would happen, I would always reference that conversation. Brother Young was right. I'd experienced things with my mother-in-law and with other people, and the more I began to see their condition, the less apt I would be to judge them. Because ultimately, we're all going to wind up in the same broken heap at some point. Conditions will be different. Circumstances, you know, some of it will be marriages and that will be broken, and some people will be alcoholics and they'll be drug addicts and, you know, just going down the line. But at the end of all of that, Sister Odessa, it all winds up being the same fleshly heap of trouble. And if you can't relate to one from the other, you probably need got, probably have a little work to do. This is my point today, and it's, it's kind of my charge to us. There's a lot to accomplish here at Grace, and we've experienced some measure of growth. And I think uh, we, we've grown in numbers some, but what, what I love about this church and our pastor, and he's not here, so I'll, I'll, I'll go the extra mile. What, what I love about the atmosphere here is that it's really a place where judgment is absent to the, to the greatest degree. I'm sure there's still a few, but we're working on it, right? There's still a few probably that, are, that look at you and, and judge, but we're working on it. This is a, a, a church and a place where uh, Brother J.T. Pugh, I heard him preach one time somewhere, and he always said that a, a, a growing church was a mess. Growing church is a messy church. And, and that's true because there's people coming here that are broken inside, and, and they don't have uh, all the polish that some of us have learned to fake with regard to social atmosphere and how to look and talk. And, you know, sometimes they'll say stupid things and, so will I. But this is a place where you can grow. This is a place where people can be healed, can, can be restored. That's beautiful. Some of you don't understand it yet, but that's what this is all about. 
So there's a lot to accomplish here, but there's something to be said for accomplishing the corporate goal with an individual purpose. If we, if, if Brian, if, if we can just all forget about each other and what this one ought to do and that one ought to do, and if I can just, if, if I can just handle the Brian, and if Jason can just work on Jason, Darnell, just work on Darnell and, and on down the line, we will accomplish the corporate goals of grace. I know it's simple, guys, but, but this is water. This is water. And it's just, like, it's just like this water, and it's just like those little clownfish that were swimming along in the ocean. We're those little fish, and we, we exist. We breathe grace and mercy every day. And sometimes we don't even know it's there. Somebody comes along and says, how's the grace today, Troy? <laughs> like, whatever, old man. And we swim off, and me and Jonathan say, what's grace anyway? We live on it. It's all we've got. It, it's what makes us any semblance of, of happy. This is water. This is grace. This is mercy. This is empathy. It's where the the spiritual rubber, if you will, meets the road. It is in these relationships. And I think this is overlooked at, at some sometimes because the Bible says it itself in, in John four and twenty. First John. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God who if not seen? This is where the rubber meets the road. If I can't get along with Sister Vernell, how can I say I love God if I don't love her? She's right there. I can see her and talk to her, and we can work on it and work it out. This is water. This is grace. This is mercy. Let's do what it takes to remember in the moment of judgment. It's just that little, and I'm almost done, but it's just that little nanosecond. I mean, it doesn't take long for you to decide a direction to go one way or the other. You kind of got to catch it quick. In that, in that moment when you decide, when you observe a circumstance or when you're in a circumstance and you're, you're forced to react, what are you going to do in that moment? And my encouragement to you today is to simply remember, to simply remember. Thank you for being here for Sunday school this morning. Uh, stick around. We're going to have an incredible service here in about 20 minutes or so. Get you another cup of coffee. I appreciate you.